Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. It's science, it's good. My name is Stu and on the show tonight I'm going to be catching up with a couple of researchers from the University of Adelaide who are animal scientists but they're actually investigating how do people uh, interact with their animal science. Where do they get their information from and how do they... Um, take it on board and how do they feel about it and uh, they're actually going to be you know looking into possibly the most dangerous animal of all that's twitter users oh i thought it was mosquitoes oh no well they probably kill more other people than other animals potentially yeah Mm, malaria Mm. is pretty bad anyway Mm. all that aside chris well me um I am. I don't know if you can tell, but I am incandescent with rage. Can you? Can you tell? Um, you have something you're, of a you are, glow. You are letting off a warm glow over that's, there. That's right. That is. Um, it is my rage about incandescent light bulbs. So I'm going to have a bit of a, a rant today about um, the the kind of the incandescent bulbs we thought were banned in Australia, but you still see them around in, in yeah. hipster places. And yeah, I'm going to have see them everywhere. Why that is the case and why they should not be used and why hipsters aren't as environmentally conscious as they may appear. Anyway, bit of a whinge. Claire. (laughs) Uh, Well, today I'm going to be uh, taking another step into the stagnant pool where the cane toads live and looking at um, a little bit about cane toad biology and about some um, ways that researchers in Australia are Um, combating the cane toad problem in the north of Australia. Okay, so I have Emily Buddle in the studio. She's a PhD student at the University of Adelaide. Yep, that's right. And she has an honours degree in... Animal science. Agricultural science. Yeah. But your current project is a little bit different, and that's why we've dragged you in to talk to you you about that. And with you as well is your supervisor, your PhD supervisor, uh, Heather Bray. Hi, Heather. Hi, how are you going? Very well, very well. Now... Tell us about agricultural science and why, what, what were you doing? You did an honours degree in ag science, so what were you studying there? Uh, my my honours degree was actually in um, animal science and I was looking at animal welfare activism, the Australian livestock industries on social media. Okay. So the use of social media by livestock industries to communicate to the broader public about what they're doing, but also animal activists and how they're using it to communicate their beef with the industry, I guess. My honours project has kind of led into my PhD. I'm still kind of interested in whether what people are saying on social media is having an impact on the general consumer consumers in Australia and whether it's impacting their purchasing decisions. So we're spending a lot of time talking to consumers about what they think about animal welfare in Australia, whether the impact, like whether uh, exposure to information on social media about anim- animal welfare especially from activists, and whether that exposure to that information is changing what people think. How do you go about doing that? (laughs) Um, You're pretty much just asking people directly. Um, 
what, what their exposure's like, whether they listened, whether they engage in the content that they're seeing from um, animal activists, um, whether they ignore it, whether they want more information, whether they're happy with their current level of knowledge about animal welfare in Australia. In contrast to science, where we believe there's some kind of truth and we're trying to represent the universe by sampling. Our work is based in the humanities and social sciences where we believe that our concept of reality is subjective anyway. So what we think is of course going to be based on our experiences and how our uh, how our ideas of the world are socially and culturally constructed. So in the kind of research that we are doing, which is qualitative research, we're not so concerned with getting a representative sample because how can you have a representative sample of humans? What, what would that even look like? What we're interested in doing is trying to get as, as many diverse views as possible and the kind of rigour comes into our research when we start to, to get a kind of saturation, when we're no longer hearing anything new. That's when we start to think, OK, now we've captured the diverse views. And the kind of analysis of this data is to try to still summarise in the same way you summarise numbers. We summarise the talk into key themes, the major themes that continue to reoccur. When Emily's saying that she's um, grappling with some of these ideas, I completely relate to that because my own training is very similar to Emily's. I've got an ag science degree. I majored in animal science. My uh, PhD was in quantitative biology, right. uh, where I measured um, you know, animals every minute um, for weeks doing different activities and I ended up with these massive spreadsheets which of course I had to analyse statistically and so to have gone from that background and then immersed myself in a humanities department which is a very different approach to research is, is quite different and it is a real head stretch but it's really exciting as a researcher because it means that you can simultaneously hold all of these different views about why people think what they might think um, so it's a really interesting space to be in. How much of the of the actual face-to-face -face stuff have you done so far? Uh, not a lot. We had two pilots in Adelaide, uh, two pilot focus groups in Adelaide, um, and then, yeah, literally flew into Melbourne this morning and started asking people at supermarkets what they thought. Well, this work, um, Emily's PhD fits into a, a, a series of projects that we've been doing at the University of Adelaide. Um, the, the preliminary project that really set the scene for this was looking at ethical food choices, of which animal welfare was a part. So um, I was involved in doing all of that research. And so in, and I, I'm actually writing the paper on the animal welfare component of that. And so some of the themes that, that, are arising, that arose in that work, we are hearing again. But... It's interesting because Emily's focusing very much on meat, whereas the Animal Welfare Project in Food Ethics included eggs and dairy. So we're really wanting to try to narrow down what's actually happening. Because farm animal welfare is one of these fantastic sort of um, wicked problems that has science at its core when you're talking about animal stress and animal biology. Um, but it also has this real social component because what people think is actually better or worse for animals is going to be a human thing. And, and so, again, it's this science, humanities, you know, STEM, has mishmash of, of stuff that we've got to somehow get working together. As people who are science trained, we're concerned that 
where, what people are thinking is also grounded in evidence and, and, and an understanding of what's actually going on. So as science communicators or, or people who are communicating about science, we, we're trying to work in this value-laden space to enable people to make decisions about what is better or worse for animals, ideally based on some understanding of what's actually going on in agriculture. So that's the, the ultimate game, is how do we actually communicate that along the, the value chain, along the you know, all the way to, to making a purchasing decision in a shop. So Heather and I are both active Twitter users and Twitter seems to be a massive thing in agriculture and a way to communicate. But whether these people being on Twitter is actually having an impact and whether their reason for being on Twitter is to communicate with consumers rather than just with each other is something that we're also interested in. How are industry using social media as a tool to communicate with the broader public or are they just using it to talk to each other? Hashtag tweets from the tractor cab style. And this is another question that um, research really needs to look at and grapple with, is are people actually acting the same way on social media as they are in real life? Is it a sample or are there extremes of behaviours or norms of behaviours? Does it have its own culture? So if we're looking, if industry, the agricultural industry is seeing activism and seeing people respond to activism in the social media space, does that actually mean that they're the kind of people who will change their behaviour or is a Facebook like you know, activism light, L-I-T-E, is that, you know, is that, does that mean anything? Or clicktivism, as they mm, call it. Slacktivism. Slacktivism even more, but yeah. Um, it is really interesting stuff. Um, I think we're going to have to wrap it up, though, because we could probably keep talking for a lot longer, but we are limited for time. And I would just like to thank Heather Bray and Emily Buttle for joining me in the studio uh, on Lost in Science. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome. Thanks, Stuart. Thank Thanks. you. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So, uh, hipsters, eh? Gotta love them. Gotta love them. Um, what, what does a hipster mean to you, Claire? Um, uh, a man with a beard and, um, I don't know, like a, some sort of beanie. Right. Some sort of ironic T-shirt on. Oh, yeah, maybe an ironic T-shirt. <laughs> um, yeah, there, there, maybe. Is, there is a man in the studio wearing an ironic T-shirt and, and a beard. Oh, like you don't have a beanie on, Stu. Yeah, yeah. I would never wear a beanie. Mm. What do you take me for, a hipster? What, what about like um, their environmental credentials? What would you think about that? I'd probably think that they were fairly environmentally conscious. Yeah, they were um, uh, would would take um, their themselves pretty seriously in that regard. The whole kind of bike riding, reusing. Well, you know, old they, they don't even have gears on their bikes. That's true. They don't have brakes yeah. on their yeah. bikes either, which is kind of yeah. weird. But... Yeah. Yeah. Well, what if I told you that they're, they're not all there, they're washed up to be necessarily. What? And that, that I found some, some holes in it. And yeah, basically what I want to talk about is the way the hipsters seem to love the kind of the old fashioned Edison style incandescent bulbs. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's my current beef for today. Um, it's not the only thing though that they can be criticized for, I think. Um, for instance, there has been quite a few studies that have shown that you're, you're environmentally conscious, you're um, your hipster kind of person, uh, tends to actually have higher greenhouse emissions than the less environmentally conscious because they do things like go on more overseas trips. 
Um, Fly to Williamsburg and eat burgers in that's Brooklyn. That's right. That's that's <laughs> yeah, pretty much it. That's that's um cow and aeroplane. That is a mm. double whammy mm. for the CO two. Oh, well, don't give us that on the cows. But yeah, now that's an interesting thing because um and that looked like I'm not going to go into that in too much detail because it is an interesting these these studies that they find that people's environmental kind of attitudes don't affect their their travel holiday travel plans. It's more about their socioeconomic kind of demographics. So yeah, there's a there's a lot of studies being done on that. So basically, what's saying is that just because you have a certain philosophy doesn't necessarily translate to what you do. And the the light bulb thing seems to be along those same vein, I suppose. Did, did you have a light bulb moment when you came up with this? No, I didn't. I didn't because that would not be environmentally conscious. Do you? Yeah, I, I, I just I'm yet to see a cartoon of someone with a, a compact fluorescent lamp appear over uh, their head. Well, I don't want to talk about the compact fluorescents that much because they never really caught on. I think the little curly. I like them. The little curly tubes. Yeah, but you know, LEDs are the thing. That's right, year. and LEDs are even more efficient than than that's CFLs. Right. That's so right. yeah, but okay. So the things that I'm on about are yeah, your incandescent lights, which you see in your your hipster cafes and restaurants and shops and those sort of things, mm. often on all night, I suppose. Dangling dangerously low. Dangling dangerously low. That's right. Now these, of course, they're styled after Thomas Edison's um, bulbs. Now Thomas Edison did not invent the light bulb. Let's just put that there. But he kind of popularized it. He made it a thing. Certainly, certainly got people to buy them. He did get people yeah. to buy them. Uh, I'm a bit surprised that the hipsters would be into Edison because they're normally on the Tesla side of, of things. Yeah, maybe if you pointed that out, they would uh, they'd abandon the Edison bulb. They'd abandon in them. favor of something else. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to work out whether it's kind of a you know a steampunk vibe they're going for. Perhaps you know they're like longing for those Victorian values of the days of child labor and cholera. Maybe that's the thing they're harking back to, <laughs> and and you know and uh, and and mad professors in their laboratories often had you know glowing uh, Edison type bulbs. That's true. That's flashing true. on and off for no apparent reason. Yeah, but I suppose look the reason that Edison used this and that they were used for so long is because they are a fairly simple device, but they're also kind of very inefficient, and this is why they've now been phased out largely. Um, they're I was thinking about it, you know, if you actually wanted to design an electric light source, you probably couldn't think of a more inefficient concept if you tried. Um, because, like, if you remember, like, in, in physics, you think about um, efficiency of, of systems, when the waste energy ends up as heat, mm. right? Mm. And, you know, this, the waste energy is the heat, and you have a little bit left to do useful work. Well, with these light bulbs, you start with heat, and then you just basically hope to get hot enough that it is glows visibly. So they're kind of, you're kind of wrong from the start there, I think, in that sense. So that is basically how they work, is you get a bit of wire yep. and heat it up until it glows. Yeah, that's right. So it's like sticking something in a fire until it glows, and you can think of it how It is much, like that, but with electricity. It it's like your toaster, yeah. basically. It's yeah. like the inside of your toaster. If you ever look inside, the inside toaster glows red, just getting a bit hotter than your toaster. So it's giving off yes. more light. Yes, yeah. that's right. So, yeah, that's what they are. Whereas um, now we have, as you said, the complex fluorescence and we have the LEDs, which I think you have talked about. Uh, yeah, we have history. talked about LEDs because they're, they're something like, you know, it uses a tenth of the electricity of any yeah, other yeah. light source to produce the same amount of light. Yeah, wow. And, and how do they work, Stu? Because you've, you've talked about them before. Oh, uh, well, I'm not exactly sure. How do they work? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I'm glad you threw that back to me. Um, no, because um, what they do, they're, they're, as the name suggests, they're, they're a diode that emits light. Uh, a diode is a electronic component made out of semiconductors that has current flowing one, di- one way. So it has a positive side and a negative side. The negative side has got more electrons than it needs. The positive side has fewer electrons than it needs, um, what they call holes, which are kind of the, the gaps where the electrons should be. And so the electrons tend to flow from the, the negative to the positive side, but they don't go the other way. 
when the negative electron goes from the negative to the positive side, it falls into one of these holes, it goes down to a lower energy state, and it gives off energy in the form of light. So yeah, like mm. I said, it's a pretty sort of simple electronic way of, of producing light. And they're vastly more, more efficient, which is why there was a Nobel Prize given last year for, well, blue LEDs in particular, but they're the thing that allowed us to have white LED lighting, or LED lighting of whatever colour we choose. Because mm. we already that... had uh, red and green, I think, for years. But, we did, yeah. But the blue was holding holding them back on getting effectively white light. That's right, yeah. Yeah. No uh, hipsters have yet to win the Nobel Prize in physics, so I've noticed. Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of retroactive hipsterdom, I suppose, when people look at pictures of people in the old days, because a lot of hipsters dress like they are from the old days, so it can be hard to tell. That doesn't count. That doesn't count. That doesn't count. count. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, so because these incandescent bulbs are so inefficient, there has been a move to, to get rid of them. Uh, and in fact, in 2007, the Australian government, the then, I think it was the, the Liberal government, Malcolm Turnbull announced it at the time, that uh, they were going to phase out incandescent bulbs. But they left a loophole there. And this was because I think, I think what it is because there were certain kind of small, low-power lamps that had special fancy decorative bulbs. And so, you know, they thought, well, people are going to have trouble finding those kind of bulbs. So we'll just allow them to have a bulb that's less than 25 watts. So use less than mm. 25 watts of power. And so there was kind of an exception that was made there in the regulations. And of course, when there is a loophole like that, people are going to jump through the, the loophole. And in this case, you know, create, there's a supply, create a demand for that supply and then all you, before you know it everyone has these bare bulbs showing off in their in their barn spaces so um yeah because these these bulbs are there that you see in random places that the only way they get through is because they are all weighted at, rated at 25 watts so they don't actually cast very much light because at 25 watts an incandescent bulb is pretty weak yeah, and that's why you need a lot of them. That's why you need a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I went down to, I did some lot of research for this, for this story. I went down to the local um, lighting store and I had a look at the, the different kinds of bulbs because they had um, the, uh, these, these fancy Edison bulbs. And they also had LED, fake LED style, like mock-ups of an Edison, or I like to call them a Ledison, if you will. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and you could compare their, their power ratings and the, the light they're supposed to give off. So the, the 25 watt uh, incandescent bulb is rated to give off 90 lumens, which is kind of the overall luminous flux um, that comes out. Um, it's, it's just basically a measure of the, the, vis the power and visible light that, that um, the light source is giving off. Uh, a candle, a standard candle would give off about 12 and a half lumens of light. Um, to, um, it's quite a lot brighter than a candle. It is quite a lot brighter than a candle. So yeah, yeah that's that's ninety lumens. Whereas the the LED equivalent um, uses five and a half watts of power, so about you know um, a fifth as much, and gives off four hundred lumens. It's a lot so, more lumens. So it's about twenty times more efficient, I suppose. Wow. Yeah. So that's just just for for comparison there. Um, so yeah, it is. They are very inefficient. Um, like I said, they're always. They're, they're, they're probably all rated at 25 watts, so they, they do build up very fast because they're not giving off the light, so you need a lot of them to light your space. I had to try to get an idea of what kind of the equivalent usage. Now, a small TV um, may use about 50 watts. So that's two of these bulbs. Are we talking a, not a cathode ray tube No, an TV. LED TV, yeah, of so course. A, a modern TV. Yeah, yeah. My fridge at home, my fridge in the kitchen at home has a little sticker on it claiming that it uses 463 kilowatt hours in a year, which on average works out to about 50 watts. So that's, again, that's two of these bulbs is a fridge. 
So right. when you see these things, a whole kind of mess of them lighting up, you know, hung down low over the tables, that's basically what they're doing is... is Just packing the place with fridges. Packing the place with fridges, if you want to look at it that way. Plus, so, plus, that's not to mention the actual fridges, because they are cafes as well, usually. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, look, I think I think this is not something that, that these supposedly environmentally conscious people should be doing. Now, I do want to say that there is a school of thought that says that we shouldn't be putting the the blame or the onus onto individuals that solve things like climate change, and that you know large scale political action is really what is going to do the job for us. Uh, and a good example may be that the problem with the ozone layer. I don't know if you recall that. That was not solved by people choosing to buy better fridges or not to spray Louis the Fly or something like that. That was done by governments effectively agreeing to ban the use of, of chlorofluorocarbons in, um, in refrigeration, that sort of thing. But in this case, I think you can make the case that the government has actually tried to ban these things and people have just latched onto them, possibly because just because they think they look cool, maybe because they were banned, it's like, oh, now they're kind of a... Sticking it to the man sort of thing. I want to know how this loophole got through in the first instance and whether there's some sort of um, light, uh, some sort of lamp um, appreciation society that was lobbying the government. Well, when I looked this up, there was a lot of people saying... Um, incandescent bulb lovers who are basically saying, how can we import, how can we get like black market imports of, of bulbs because mm. we don't want to be forced to have these efficient ones. Um, but it, it does seem to be mostly these, these weird kind of decorative lamps that now has expanded to this larger market for decorative lamps as a result of that. The, um, the regulations do say that they can um, reassess the um, banning bulbs under 25 watts if there are suitable replacements. So we may actually see the day when the there's enough of these LED ones that look pretty much exactly the same that they'll just say, well, okay, you don't need the the inefficient ones anymore. But until then, I'm you know I'm making a stand. I'm gonna what I'm gonna do, I have a plan. I am going to uh, take photos of places that use these bulbs and I'm gonna put a post them on the social media with the hashtag incandescent rage. <laughs> So look out for that. I encourage all of you to use the hashtag incandescent rage to draw attention to these and shame these these institutions that are using these. Is these that bulbs. before or after you order your single origin coffee? <laughs> well, single or nothing wrong with single origin. That's fine. That's that's responsible um, fair trade coffee and that sort of thing. Um, but no, I mean, if if you just want to get them, you know, if you want to if you want to stop them being imported and stop them being manufactured on a large scale, that's fine. But you could just kick off a you know afternoon. Uh, cottage industry of bespoke uh, light globes that people yeah, can, knit, people knit can make own, in their own... your own globe. Yeah, we're going to do their that. Own no, homes. I'm just saying that, that look, they, these things are obviously legal. Just don't think that you're being environmentally conscious if you're using them. That's all. I just want to draw attention to that. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's good. That's right. So last week I talked a bit about the history of um, Australia's most despised invasive animal, as we decided. It was um, probably jointly despised with the Indian minor bird. Well, this week I am going to be diving into the stagnant toad pole pool. Toad pole, for those um, at home, 
is a tadpole, but for toads, a toad pole. Yeah. So the toad pole filled waters um, and having a look at what makes the cane toad so hard to control Mm -hmm. and how scientists are using uh, toad biology to control the cane toads in northern Australia. Now, looking at it, there are three good reasons why controlling toads is one of the more challenging tasks for us as Australians. And um, the first one is, of course, female cane toads are super mums. As I explained last week, a single female toad can produce around 30,000 eggs in a single clutch, much more than any native frog can. Um, So if your aim is to remove all adult, adult toads, and you miss a few, you only need one female to then repopulate very quickly. Uh, Number two reason is there is no greater enemy to a cane toad than another cane toad. Uh, They eat each other and they compete with each other and so on. So the more cane toads you remove, uh, the better things are for the cane toads that are left. So the more you remove, the more you get? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, the more you remove, the more you get because they're competing with one another. Wow. I know, so, it's so yeah, messy. so more of the more of the babies of the cane toads that are left will grow up to be big cane toads. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and number three is cane toads are a little bit like a hopping army in Australia at the moment. Um, the ones, the ones that are at the invasion front, mm-hmm. as in um, they're at the edges of where cane toads are distributed around Australia. They spend their whole lives as nomads, just charging forward into really? the instru- in, into the Australian environment. Yeah, um, they go as fast as they can. Um, sometimes they can cover a kilometre um, overnight. Um, that's pretty fast, I imagine, yeah. for a, for a cane toad, and it makes them pretty hard to target. And um, it makes it means that they're entering new habitats all the time. Do you know how far have they reached? Uh, Geographically, Mm. well, um, if you look at the invasion, so in the 1960s, Mm. just looking at um, accelerations and that sort of thing, in the 1960s, the cane toad invasion, um, they were travelling at approximately 10 kilometres a year. So that was out of Queensland. Right. Um, So slowly but surely, they were were making a move. Uh, But if you think about it, the ones at the front are the fastest – and they're breeding with the other ones at the front, which are also very fast. Um, and these large athletic toads are um, having or begetting other large athletic toads. And so every generation is getting faster and faster. It's sort of like this um, this evolutionary selection pressure that's favouring the big, fast toads. So um, fast forward to 2015. And the toads are invading uh, at where at 50 to 60 kilometres a year. So back in the 1960s, it was 10 kilometres a year, and now it's at 60 kilometres so per six, year. So six times as much territory per year. Yep. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in, the, um, in the toad business, they call this effect the Olympic Village effect because the fastest toads are breeding with the other fastest toads and they're, they're making even faster toads, baby toads. Uh, we already know that they're really prolific reproducers and so killing adults to try and control the population isn't very effective. Uh, but some very clever research is exploiting the relationship between the toad poles, as in the tadpoles that are um, 
toads. Um, and and the toad the toad eggs. Now the toads are cannibals, and the toad poles love to snack on fresh toad eggs. So when toad poles are trying to find cane toad eggs. The way that they do it is by homing in on the cane toad toxin. Now, this is the same cane toad toxin that mm. kills all of our um, native animals when they ingest it. So we know that the toad poles um, can target the toxin. And this is where this clever innovation comes in. So using really simple traps like a yabby trap that's baited with the toad toxin mm -hmm. so that could be like a dead toad the trap can rapidly catch like thousands and thousands of these toad poles oh, wow. um, in a really short space of time and it doesn't affect any other animal in the process the other side of cane toad management which is not managing the actual cane toads but um, managing the effects of the cane toads so i.e the loss of the native fauna mm -hmm. um, now there's some innovative researchers from team bufo which is a collaborative group of scientists researching cane toads. As you know, the scientific name for cane toads is Bufo Marinus. Team Bufo are teaching animals not to go near toads and effectively re like removing the risk to the animals through changing their behaviour. So what do they do, put up little signs around saying, do not go near the toads? Well, they're actually using, um, using the cane toads as teacher toads. So small live toads um, that would make predators sick but wouldn't mm -hmm. kill them. Um, they're giving them to eat as a way of being like, see, this is what a toad is. It's This one's not going to kill you, but it's going to make you pretty sick. Aversion therapy. It's aversion therapy, mm. that's right, um, for goannas and snakes, and um, it's really effective in crocodiles as well. Right. Yeah, and it's had some really promising results. Um, and their most ambitious project to date is has been with quolls, so with carnivorous marsupials, the quoll. Uh, now, quolls are really susceptible to being fatally poisoned, and um, but Team Bufo have done some tests with uh, quolls at the Territory Wildlife Park, and the quolls have rapidly learnt to leave toads alone um, if they give these quolls um, a toad, but with some sort of like nausea-inducing chemical, and oh. then they give it to them, and then... So the quoll didn't get the message was just with the toad? The, the quoll wasn't getting the message just with the toad. It had to have this right. non-harmful yet nausea-inducing chemical. Okay. And then after that, the quoll's like, I'm not going near that thing again. Right, fair enough. Yeah. And so now they're re-releasing these quolls back into Kakadu, which I can tell you is swarming with cane toads, and they're having really positive results. The quolls aren't going near the cane toads, and they're living long enough to reproduce. So this is extremely exciting. Um, it's like the first practical success um, to help Australian predators great, yeah. deal with cane toads. And although it's not completely wiping out cane toads from our ecosystem, it's a pretty cool step forward. It's minimising the impact. Absolutely.
that's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in, in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.